You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I believe that God is in the heavens and He does what He pleases, that no purpose of His can be thwarted, and that He accomplishes all of His will. I believe that that He is the ineffable God of glory who dwells in light unapproachable. I believe that He sovereignly accomplishes all that He desires in creation, in redemption, and in all of history. And that by His providence, He works all things after the counsel of His own will without asking any questions of the creature or taking a poll as to what you and I might prefer or want. He is the God of all glory. And everything works out to the summation and the bringing up of all things back and consummated under Christ. And God will bring all things, including death, under His feet. And it will be all to His glory for all of eternity. How many of you can say amen to that confession? That is the God that we serve. And that is the belief of Christians for the last 2,000 years. And it was the belief of Abraham. It was the belief of Adam. It was the belief of all of human history, all of human history who worshipped the God of the Bible. Now, if God is ineffably glorious and if He is sovereign, then that means that there is not one modicum of power or sovereignty that does not belong to Him. It means that there is not one molecule or one atom in the entire created universe that does not obey His every command at all times. If God is sovereign, then it means all power belongs to Him. And if He is sovereign, then He does not delegate His sovereignty or abdicate His sovereignty to somebody else. And the degree to which God gives up sovereignty or power to some other creature is the degree to which God ceases to be God. He is the sovereign God. And if God is sovereign, then it means that history is not some random collection of purposeless events that just pile in one upon another. If God is sovereign, then it means everything that comes into my life does so by the power, the love, the grace, and the providence of God. And I can trust Him in that. That is the mystery of providence. Paul said that God works all things to good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things or just a few things? All things. He works all things after the counsel of His own will. He works all things to the good of those who are called according to His purpose. I am confident that there is nothing in history that has ever happened or that will happen, or that is happening right now, that will not ultimately work out for my good and His glory. I have that confidence. Now how is it that God can work good out of all of the evil that comes about? How is it that God can take the wicked choices, and the sinful intentions, and the wicked motives of rebellious human creatures, and use them to accomplish His holy and perfect will? How does God do that? I don't know, but I know that he does. It's the mystery of providence. Remember what Joseph told his brothers? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. God willed the same thing that Joseph's brothers willed 
Joseph's brothers willed it with a wicked will. God willed it with a holy will that he would save the entire nation and bring them down into Egypt. Yet God took the wicked choices, the wicked motives, and the wicked intentions of those 12 brothers and he worked an incredible good out of it in saving the entire nation through Joseph. How does God do that? Listen, if Joseph did not believe in the sovereignty of God, and if Joseph did not believe that God works all things for good to those who are loved by him and called according to his purpose, if Joseph didn't believe that, he would have said, ha, it's funny how that worked out, isn't it? I mean, it worked out okay in the end. We had no confidence it was going to work out okay in the end. Listen, folks, if I didn't believe that God was sovereign and that God was working everything for my good and his glory, I'd go nuts. Because I watched too much news to keep my sanity if I didn't believe that. But I do believe it because that's what Scripture teaches. And I believe that Stephen believed it as well. You see, if that's your God and if that's your faith, friends, you can face anything with unflinching courage and confidence. There is nothing that can come into your life that can rattle you if that's your firm confidence, the belief in the power and the grace and the sovereignty of God and that He has a plan in all things. Stephen believed that. We've looked at Stephen as he has stood before this council of men, this Sanhedrin, 70 of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, and they have brought in false witness after false witness against him to testify concerning him that he spoke against the temple, that he spoke against the law, that he spoke against Moses, and that he blasphemed God. And we have watched Stephen give an unflinching, unfaulting defense of his faith and of the truth to these men. He has traced the nation of Israel, and this is what we looked at last week, from the time of Abraham all the way through to their present. And he has unfolded that one theme that he wanted to hit them right between the eyes with. And what was that one theme? Do you remember it? The nation's consistent and persistent rejection of God. Although a chosen nation, they rejected God, illustrated by Joseph. And the fact that the patriarchs rejected him. It's illustrated by Moses. And the fact the entire nation rejected Moses. It was illustrated in the temple. And then it was illustrated in their rejection of their Messiah. And that's where Stephen concludes his message. That didn't go over well with the people who listened to this message. You may have been sitting there and, and have heard all of this, but you probably would have been carried along with the mob just as the rest of them were. And as they heard what Stephen had said, they intended in their hearts to kill him. In fact, I believe they intended in their hearts to kill him before he even started speaking. And so we pick up the story in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, and as we watch Stephen suffer for the faith and be martyred, the first Christian martyr, we're going to see, observe three things that are very instructive to us. First, we're going to see God's participation, that is His partaking in our suffering. Second, we're going to observe God's power in suffering. And then the third thing we're going to look at is God's plan in our suffering. Acts chapter 7, verse 54, when they heard this, that is when they heard Stephen's message, they were cut to the quick. The word means they were sawn asunder. That's the word that was used of sawing a board in half. That is what Stephen's word did to their hearts. Like a sword, the word of God, as Stephen expounded upon it, cut right to the very quick of their being. And they gnashed their teeth at him, Luke says. This is not the first time that the council has been cut to the quick. Do you remember the last time? Acts chapter 5, all of the apostles stood before the council and Peter gave his defense on behalf of all of the apostles before this very same council. And Acts chapter 5, verse 33 says they were cut to the quick and they intended to kill them. But Gamaliel's advice ended up getting them off with just a flogging and he let them go. The Word of God pierced to their hearts and rather than producing in them repentance, it produced rebellion. 
And they were cut to the quick and they started gnashing their teeth at him. And in the presence of this council, as Stephen begins to feel the heat of their hatred for him, and he sees them gnashing their teeth at him, Stephen catches a glimpse of something that had to have just put him at peace. If there were any disturbance in his soul at all, this would have done away with it. Stephen's eyes are opened and he gets a glimpse of something that few men in the Bible ever saw. Stephen gets a glimpse of the glory of God and the throne of God. And he sees that. The throne of God and all of that glory. And he sees the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of the Father. And Stephen, having seen this, his eyes being opened to something that only Isaiah and Ezekiel and maybe one or two others had seen up to this point, Stephen seeing this reiterates what it is that he sees. And he says, Behold, I see heaven open." And they see the glory of God, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the glory of God. This is what he speaks to the council. Do you think that went over well with them? Hey, not at all. Not at all. Now, does Scripture say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, or does Scripture say that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God? Well, if you're thinking back to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, The writer says, when He, that is Christ, made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, the main point of what is said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of Majesty in the heavens. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, but He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, has sat down at the right hand of God. So is Christ seated at the right hand of God or is He standing at the right hand of God? It's both. Redemptively speaking, it is finished. He's finished the work and He has sat down. There is no more sacrifice needed to be made for sin. That's the point of the author of Hebrews. No more animals in the temple. No more priesthood. None of the old order. No need for any of that. Christ has accomplished it. He has made the sacrifice for sin and He has sat down. The work is finished. Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. Atonement has been made. Sin has been paid for. And so He sat down. But here... As Stephen catches a glimpse of heaven as if it is in his very proximity. Now, I don't know if Stephen was looking up. I don't know if he was looking straight forward. I don't know if all of a sudden his eyes were open to see the reality that was around him. But he glimpses something. He glimpses the glory of God and Christ standing. Not seated, but standing at the right hand of God. I think that indicates to us, friends, the concern, the participation that God had in the suffering of Stephen. He's not aloof from it. God is not sitting up in the heavens kicking back and watching what is going on down here with us without any sympathy, without any partaking in our sufferings, without any understanding. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a a high priest who sits in the heavens having understood what pain means. Christ Himself was suffered unjustly at the hands of wicked men. And while His sheep, Stephen, is going through that very thing, He's standing there because I think he's concerned. I also think that he's waiting and he's going to welcome Stephen into heaven because Christ understands what he went through. Redemptively speaking, the work is done and he has sat down. But friends, that does not mean that he is aloof from our suffering because while Stephen is down here giving his defense and about to die at the hands of these men, Christ is standing at the right hand of God about to welcome him into heaven. Now don't miss the significance of the impact that Stephen's words would have had on that council. What he has just said to them, I see the heavens open 
the glory of God and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of that glory. These men standing there listening to this would have said to themselves, you are claiming to see a glimpse of heaven. Who are you that you think God would reveal himself and his glory and his throne to you? Furthermore, who are you to suggest that a man who died as a criminal on a cross under the divine curse could possibly stand at the right hand of God? See, that was blasphemy for them to hear that. They could never tolerate that. And for Stephen to suggest that he could see the glory of God, something that was not evident to them, that's blasphemy. Who is this uneducated, common Hellenistic Jew to think that he could see the glory of God which is not evident to us? And they were just ready to jump on him with this charge of blasphemy. But there's a second thing in the words that Stephen says that is significant. He uses the term Son of Man. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of glory. That would bring back to these men's minds one other trial that they sat in on where they gave a guilty verdict. Do you remember what it was? The high priest said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, I adjure you in the name of the living God, tell us whether or not you're the Christ. And what did Jesus say? You've said it yourself, but from now on, you'll see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of glory and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and he said, that's blasphemy. What more need do we have of witnesses? You've heard it yourself. What do you say? And they gave the guilty verdict. He deserves death. And here Stephen stands before these very men and he affirms to them the same thing that they had heard Christ say just less than two years prior. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of glory. Now they are stuck with a very interesting dilemma. They either admit that what Stephen, they either admit that what Christ said was not blasphemy, or they have to kill Stephen for affirming the same thing. What do you think they're going to choose? They're never going to admit they're wrong. They're going to kill Stephen for affirming the same thing. Listen, folks, when you and I suffer, God is not distant from it. He does not stand aloof. He is not unconcerned about it. I believe that in the suffering of His saints, He is so intimately involved that He could be described as standing. The psalmist says that God stands at the right hand of the needy to save His soul from those who would judge Him. That's the position of God. He is standing as a deliverer. He is partaking in it. He is interested in it. He is concerned with our suffering. That's the first thing we learn. Second, I want you to notice God's power in suffering. After Stephen's confession, look down at verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse and they drove him out of the city. They cannot tolerate, they cannot hear one more word of what they deem as blasphemy. They cannot stomach the idea that Stephen would affirm that Christ is God, that He is seated at the right hand of majesty. They cannot affirm that this man whom they had put to death only two years prior could possibly be seated in glory at the right hand of power and majesty and authority and sovereignty and rule. They cannot stomach this to the point where they cover their ears and they start yelling at the top of their voices to drown out Stephen's voice. Have you ever seen children do that? Cover their ears? I can't hear you. But these aren't children. This is the Supreme Court of Israel. Pretty dignified behavior, isn't it? You get the atmosphere of justice being done here? You don't, do you? They cannot stomach what he says. They cover their ears. They scream at the top of their lungs. 
and they rush at Stephen. And that word rush is the word that was used to describe the rushing of those demon-possessed swine off of the cliff after they had gone in out of that man and into those swine. It is a mad, frenzied, mindless, impulsive coming upon something. And they just charge after Stephen. And they drive him outside the city. Why do they drive him outside the city? Well, because the law said that if you were going to stone a heretic or a blasphemer, you had to do it outside the camp. You don't want to defile the city by stoning a heretic inside the city. You see, they have no problem killing an innocent man. They just want to do it lawfully. So they rush him outside the city to do this. And they pick up stones to stone him. And it has to be the witnesses who pick up stones. In fact, um, one of the... I think it's the Talmud that records how stoning was done in those days and what the procedure of it was. They would take him outside the city to a parapet, like a like a, a a cliff or an edge that was about two times as deep as the victim was tall. And they would stand him on the edge of that, and one of the witnesses who had bore witness against him in the trial had to come up behind and push him face first off the edge of that. Then a second witness would pick up a large stone, and he would be the first to hurl it down on the witness. And after that, then all of the congregation would pick up stones, and together they would hail down these stones on top of the offender. That was the process of stoning. Well, Luke tells us that they took him outside the city and they began to stone him. And he says that the witnesses took off their outer robes and they laid him at the feet of a young man named Saul. You see, it was the witnesses who had to be first to stone Stephen. So it's the witnesses who take off their coat and they give him to this young man named Saul. Young man, young is a word used to describe somebody between the ages of 25 and 40. That's the age group that we're talking about. Paul is probably around the age 30. 32 maybe at this time, if the chronology all works out. About 32. He's a young man. Okay, so all of you who are between 30 and 40, Scripture calls you a young man, so rejoice in that. For those of you who are over 40, I have no consolation for you whatsoever. (laughs) They laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now that indicates something. Saul was not one of the witnesses. And by the way, they're not just pulling him off the street because he's a passerby. Here, guard our clothes. Because chapter 8, verse 1 says that he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. That indicates a deep involvement in this whole wicked affair. I don't know what the involvement is because we're not told exactly other than he was in agreement. Perhaps he cast his vote against Stephen that resulted in his death. Maybe Saul was one of the ones who publicly debated Stephen back in chapter 6. Maybe Saul was one of the ones who stirred up all the false witnesses and gave them the charges to bring against Stephen. He was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death He wasn't one who cast the stone. He wasn't one who bore witness against Stephen, or he would have laid his robe at the feet of somebody else and cast some of the first stones. But he was there, and he was in hearty agreement with this whole episode of putting Stephen to death. This whole bloody affair has behind it a man named Saul. This is where Steve is introducing, uh, this is where Luke is introducing us to Saul. It's not mentioned before this. This is the first time in the book of Acts, that Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, is mentioned. And he stands while he guards the garments of those who rain down stones upon Stephen. And in the midst of all of this hatred, in the midst of all of this bloody affair and and all of the wickedness against him, Stephen prays something. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that prayer sound familiar? Gospel of Luke, Jesus on the cross. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen's words 
are similar enough to Jesus that it's intentional, but it's different enough from the words of Jesus to be intentional. Do you notice what the difference is? Jesus prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What's Stephen indicating? That Christ is God. You would never pray to Jesus if Stephen did not believe that Jesus Christ was God incarnate. He would never pray to him. Otherwise, that would be blasphemy and it would be idolatry. But Stephen does just that. He's already affirmed the deity of Christ by saying that he saw him at the right hand of majesty. Now he simply offers a prayer to him and commits to Christ his most valued possession, which is his spirit. Knowing that Christ as God is able to keep that which He has committed unto Him against that day, He offers to Jesus that, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now I can well imagine that in the midst of that hatred, as they heard those words come from Stephen, that would just intensify their hatred. Here is a man who has affirmed that a crucified man is God, and now he's praying a blasphemous prayer to this man. And so the rocks would rain down with increasing speed and frequency on Stephen. And as those rocks began to bludgeon his head and cut his flesh, he cried out with a louder voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Praying again as Jesus did, Lord, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. And then Luke says he fell asleep. He fell asleep. It has nothing to do with soul sleep or some unconscious existence after death. It has nothing to do with that. It's a metaphor and it's a very a very peaceful way of speaking how Stephen died. Stephen doesn't say, having said this, he was bludgeoned unconscious or his body was torn to shreds by stones. He doesn't say that they bashed his brains out. He doesn't say anything gory, anything traumatic like this. He fell asleep. He died in peace. Friends, that is the power of God on display. We see not only God's participation in our suffering, but His power in our suffering. What is it that gives a man the ability to pray for those who take his life and to love them? What is it that gives Paul the ability to write from a prison expecting execution and to say, I have, my life is being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come? What is it that gives him the ability to say to live as Christ and to die is gain and to depart and be with Christ is far better? What gives a man the ability to take death like that with such serenity and with such peace? in the midst of hostility? What is it that gives a man like William Tyndale, who was strangled and then burned at the stake for his faith, the ability to pray as his last words, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England? And what is it that gave Ignatius the courage and the power to actually beg the Romans not to prevent his martyrdom, but he said, permit me to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts because I am the wheat of Christ. And if I am ground with the teeth of wild beasts, I shall be purebred for him. What gives a man the ability to take death like that? Stephen was full of the Spirit. It's power. It's God's power on display in the midst of his suffering. And that power manifested itself in a peace that surpasses all understanding. And a grace that was on display to those who hated him. And a love that was returned for hatred. And grace that was returned to those men for their bitterness. And he simply committed himself to the Lord and then prayed, Lord, Don't hold this sin against them. He prayed for his persecutors. That, my friends, is the power of God on display. It's the same power that is available to you and I to love those who hate us and to do good to those who persecute us. It's the same power that's available to you and I to love those who would seek to do us harm and to return good to them and to pray for them. 
and to bless them in some way. That's the power of God. We see not only God's participation in our suffering and His power in our suffering, the third thing we notice in all of this is God's plan in our suffering. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Maybe arms folded. Tapping his foot a little bit. Swaying back and forth. This is what he had been waiting for. He laid aside all of the moderating influences of his teacher Gamaliel, who earlier said, just let these guys be. And instead, he cast his vote against them, and he was of one accord with them. And this is what he wanted. This is what he had been waiting for. This is what he has been chomping at the bit to see happen, I believe, for quite some time. He was in hearty agreement with putting them to death. And Luke says, on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. From that day there started and began a a persecution against Christians that Luke can only describe as great. It was intense. And it was intense enough that the believers who were in Jerusalem were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Up until this time, the Christian church was located and almost isolated in the city of Jerusalem. Some in the surrounding regions, we find out earlier in the book, had heard of the apostles and were bringing their sick to them to have them cured. But the church itself and its influence was isolated to the city of Jerusalem. And now, from this day forward, a great persecution arose and all of the people went out from there. What was God's plan in all of this? Did God have a plan? He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the world. God is sovereignly working out His plan. Saul comes in and he begins to ravage the church. And the believers are scattered. Where? To where God wants the Gospel to go. Judea and Samaria. And who does He use to send the Gospel to Judea and Samaria? Saul. What Saul intended for evil, God was working for good. God was accomplishing His purposes. And the Gospel went to Judea and the Gospel went to Samaria. And God was working it all out. Verse 2 says that some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. They were weeping. The Jewish literature at the time prohibited a public or vocal weeping over a stoning victim. Because in stoning a heretic or a blasphemer, that was ridding the land of evil and wickedness and sin. And it was not to be mourned. It was to be openly celebrated. And if you were going to mourn, it was to be inside, never vocal and never outside. The fact that these devout men took Stephen and buried him and then made loud lamentation over him. It's sort of a vocal protest by which they're saying this was not a just trial and it was not a just execution. This man was murdered in cold blood. And indeed he was. But while they are mourning him, Saul wastes no time. Look at verse 3. Saul began ravaging the church. The word was used of a wild animal that would tear to shreds a carcass. That's the word that Luke uses. The young man named Saul of Tarsus sunk his teeth into the church and he started to tear it apart and to ravage it. And he went from house to house, Luke says, rounding up men and women, throwing them into prison. Why house to house? Because the church met in homes in those early days. That's where the churches met. So if there was a church meeting in a home, Saul of Tarsus was there, rounding up the believers, throwing them into prison. Folks, it's interesting to me how Luke introduces the next main character of the book of Acts. Is it flattering? 
Saul of Tarsus is the hero of this book. Does he introduce him in a flattering way? He could have introduced him in chapter 1 and said when the Lord ascended into heaven, Saul was in such and such a place and he was doing this. He could have introduced him in chapter 3 and said when Peter and John healed the beggar in the temple, Saul of Tarsus was off in this such and such a place and doing this, but he doesn't. Luke is a masterful writer and he waits until a climactic event and he introduces the next main character, brings him on the scene, he opens up the curtains for us and he says, look at the man that was behind all of this. Here he is. And we're introduced to Saul as a violent aggressor, a persecutor, a Christian hater. Luke could have started this book with chapter 13. Saul and Barnabas were in the church in Antioch ministering to the Lord and the Spirit spoke to them and said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. Luke could have started the story there, but he doesn't. Because Luke wants us to understand an essential element of the Apostle Paul that he once tried to kill the very faith that he now preaches. And so the first glimpse we get of Paul is as a persecutor. Listen, folks, Paul never got over his past. Paul never got over the fact that he once tried to kill the church and to ravage the church. In fact, that is why the Apostle Paul refers to himself as a chief, the chief of sinners. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who considered me faithful and He put me into service even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I found grace and mercy in Christ. He never got over that. It awed him that God would choose somebody to preach Christ who once persecuted Christ. And he never recovered from that. And it constantly humbled him as he remembered his past and what God had brought him out of. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says, I am the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, I'm the least of all the saints. If you were standing here today, he would say to you, I'm worse than you. I'm less than you. I'm not better. This is the apostle, Paul. How could he have such a realistic view of himself? Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And he uses a military word that means to uh, to rage upon a besieged city. He wasn't just antagonistic toward it, folks. He set out with something in mind. I'm going to kill this movement. I'm going to destroy this faith. And I think that he was zealous enough and single-purposed enough that he had in his mind, before I breathe my last, there will be no more Christians. That's what he set out to do. He never got over the fact that he had done this. And folks, he never got over this day. Because from this day forward is when he started doing that. But there was something that happened on this day that had an impact in the life of Saul of Tarsus. Because later on in Acts chapter 22, he says that he said to the Lord, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. That was part of his testimony. He says, I was there when Stephen was slain. This was an event that he never forgot. Acts chapter 26, Saul said, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, 
I cast my vote against them. A reference to Stephen. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. He never got over it. Listen, Saul of Tarsus watched Stephen pray. And he watched Stephen die. And a seed was planted there that later on produced fruit. Folks, you have no idea who is watching you endure suffering. You have no idea who is standing by the sidelines at your place of work or in your home or in your sphere of influence who is watching you endure physical pain and how you deal with the things that God brings into your life. Stephen had no way of knowing that this young man who stood off to the side and watched the garments was watching him die and watching him pray and that Stephen's death would have an impact on him at some time in the future. Stephen had no way of knowing that. But he died gracefully. He died just like Jesus died. And that day a seed was planted in the heart of Saul. And you have no idea how many seeds you're planting in the heart of those who watch you as they watch you endure and deal with the affliction, the suffering, the pain, the trials, the tribulations that God allows to be brought into your life. And here's what you can know. That God has a plan in it. And that you can trust Him to work it out for good. And that you can love Him and serve Him and worship and praise Him all the way through it, trusting that he's going to bring some good out of it. I agree with Augustine who said, if Stephen had never prayed, the church would never have Paul. If Stephen had never prayed, the church would never have Paul. That's the kind of influence he had. At our time in history, Korea is the only Asian country that has a population uh, 20%, whose, whose population is 20% or more Christian. The only Asian country whose population is 20% or more Christian. It hasn't always been like that. The gospel has only been in the nation of Korea for a little over a hundred years. Robert Welsh was, or Robert um, Thomas was a Welsh missionary with the Scottish Bible Society. And he had served in China. And when Thomas found out that the Korean people were able to read, some of the Korean people were able to read the Chinese language because the languages were related, he set off to take what literature he had into Korea, hoping that he could at least get the gospel, even if in Chinese, into the nation of Korea, into the land of Korea. So he set out on board an American ship, the General Sherman, and he headed for Pyongyang. And as the ship approached the shore, a firefight broke out between the Korean Coast Guard and this American ship. And every, the ship was sunk and everybody aboard was killed. And somehow in the midst of all of that, Robert Thomas was able to struggle aboard, the only survivor, struggle up to the shore. And he pulled himself out of the water with his arms full of Bibles and he thrust these into the hands of the Korean people who bludgeoned him with sticks to death. And now the Gospel was on the shore of Korea. Literally. A pointless death? No. Robert Thomas died. And the Gospel went to Korea. Stephen died. And the Gospel went to Judea and to Samaria. And because of that, through the Apostle Paul, to the remotest parts of the world. Stephen is truly, my friends, a missionary to the Gentiles. Through his death, God started the international reach of the Gospel. You and I can observe God's participation in our suffering his power in our suffering, and his plan in our suffering. And you and I can understand that in the midst of what we endure, God is working out his perfect plan because it's all working to good 
to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and for the encouragement that we see even in the death of Stephen. Thank you for his example. Thank you for that model. And thank you, Father, that you are sovereign, that you're working everything for good. And we pray that you would give to us the grace to trust you and to live constantly understanding that you're using us in some plan. Thank you that you stoop to use us in your eternal plan for your eternal glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.